Hello and welcome to this roundtable podcast from the Centre for Contemporary Art, Derry, Londonderry. I'm Catherine Hemmelreich, CCA's Director, and I'm very pleased to introduce artists Bojana Jankovic, Vukashin Nedjelkovic and Justin Kwame. Bojana Jankovic describes herself as an artist and immigrant occupying the immigration regime between London and Belfast and was one of three artists in CCA's exhibition Ballads of Rhinestones and Newcomers, where she highlighted the everyday experience of an invisible yet hard border for migrants on the island of Ireland. And she's one of the founders of the Migrants in Culture Network. Vukashin Nedeljakovic is an artist and activist based in Dublin and initiator of the multidisciplinary project Asylum Archive. The project began when he started documenting the direct provision in Ireland while he was waiting for the results of his asylum application. It has grown to become a platform for dialogue and an online resource, a point for collaboration and discussion inclusive to individuals who have experienced social trauma and violence and a sense of sociological and geographical displacement. Having come to Northern Ireland from the Ivory Coast, Justin Kwame has held a number of positions during his time in NI. He was formerly chair of the Northern Ireland Community of Refugees and Asylum Seekers and a member of the Northern Ireland Council for Ethnic Minorities and is one of the newly appointed commissioners, Northern Ireland Human Rights Commission. He is also an artist and last year one of the first recipients of Arts Council of Northern Ireland's SIAP Minority Ethnic Residency and Mentoring Programme. This roundtable is made possible thanks to the support of Arts Council of Northern Ireland, Derry City and Strabant District Council and the Art Fund. So I want to start by asking each of you in my homage to Matt Everett, when were you first aware of art? Boyana. I have a pretty, un, I think, unremarkable story. I don't know that it has to be remarkable, but um, I actually given the fact that I mostly spend my time and my practice mostly lives in gallery spaces and public spaces now, it occurs to me that I, my first I remember art moment was actually in theatre. I'm incredibly lucky that my parents probably in a in an effort to um, continue having a life just took me everywhere and from when I was a child this included a lot of grown-up theater and I was growing up in 1990s Yugoslavia and it was all very depressing and very sad but I have a distinct memory of being about eight maybe seven or eight uh, in this a very small theater in Belgrade watching what I later discovered was a hugely inappropriate performance to take a seven-year-old to. But I just remember being completely mesmerized. It was one of those childhood moments. I used a lot of walnuts as a prop in the performance. I stole a walnut afterwards from the stage because it was a really small stage and decided that and there I indeed would dedicate my life to theatre, which I did for a while because I did go on to study theatre directing after some meandering. But that was, I just remember that being the first time where somehow the complete, as I said, inappropriateness of what I was watching actually washed over me because I just, I remember the actor. I remember what was happening on stage. It was just incredible to me that I could be at such close proximity to it. I just wanted to be it and do it. So that's my first. I have some vague memories of being in other theatre and performance spaces and galleries before then, but that's the first time I remember experiencing stuff as opposed to just being in a space. Bukashin, what about you? I don't think I can recall the moment when I was first made aware of art. Is I think that living in, um, in in exile or forever exile, memory loss is something that is kind of embedding me still. But I remember clearly when I re-remembered art and it was a crucial moment of departure um, for me as a, as a existence um, in, in Ireland. And that was the moment when I sought a refuge in Ireland and um, applying for international protection. And I was living in one of the reprovision centres in Ireland, which are the um, accommodation centre or dispersal scheme for people uh, looking for protection. And I remember I was living in a small town in Ballyhollis in rural Ireland in the room 20 and I was struggling a lot and there was the moment of revelation as such as I kind of realized that it's still um, 
in my bag was that small Olympus camera that had uh, at the time five megapixels that my dad put in my bag and said, well, you never know how this may be of use. And uh, that's how it started. And that was the origin of the asylum archive and a coping mechanism that I am really grateful to that small camera. It's, uh, it's almost saved my life. And Justin, for you. Yes, uh... I started really doing art because in Africa, like West Africa, in college you you do art. But I started doing you know portraiture when I was in university. My flatmate was studying fine art, so I was curious to see to know exactly what he was doing all the time, how he could draw, you know, look at a photo and then draw the same people onto a paper using charcoal. And so he said to me, "No, you know." It's easy to do. He said, yes, that's what I would like to try. So he prepped the paper for me. You know, at that time, you know, you have to, you know, you have to prep the paper, doing some squares and do the squares as well on the photo, put on the photo. And then I start doing my parent first. And then I thought, you know, and then he finished it for me. And I was very, you know, intrigued and in how to reproduce someone's face from photo to a paper and look very similar I say okay let me try to you know start doing it so I start doing family members first then when I came here in 2009 you know I to the asylum process like my colleague Vukasin it was very you know challenging difficult thing to do you know go waiting for asylum decision and the process then a lovely lady I knew volunteer from Nicras when I said to her, because she does a lot of landscape painting for free, she donated. And I said, I know I can draw, you know. She said, yes. So she bought me a pack of pencil and gave me a paper, a block of paper. So when I finish the class, I go home. And then I start going back to the basics, start doing like the eyes, the nose, the, because I haven't done it for a long time, you know, starting slowly, slowly, slowly. And this is how for me became therapeutic. So I go, I do all my engagement as a chair. When I came home, when I can't sleep, then I will sit down and start drawing. And this is how it develops. And then when I moved to Simon community, the staff noticed I was trying to do some art. And my support worker, she has a master in fine art, and then she has her own practice by working for Simon Community. So she spoke to the manager and they provide me with some stuff. I never used a watercolor before. So for me, it was the cheapest option. You know, in my situation, my condition, graphite and watercolor were very cheap for me to get. So this is how I start learning how to use watercolor. And, and this is how... I really start with art, but I learned from back home many, many years ago. But then the situation here, you know, to deal with the hardship of the immigration process, I, I went back. But to be honest, maybe after two weeks, this article came out. I have a lot of friends, people I know, they don't even know I can draw or I can paint. They have no idea because something I kept secret. You know, I don't really talk about it. I just came home and do my thing and stock it somewhere. And then it was a bit of a surprise for people to see me. Like, oh, Justin, I saw you in the newspaper. I didn't know you could. I said, yeah, I've been doing this for a long time. So that's my story of art. So for any listeners who may not be aware, you can actually Google Justin and find a rather fantastic interview with him in the Belfast Telegraph. Boyana, you came to visual arts via sort of performance and tell me about it. I, I think I went to what in the UK would be called drama school. I studied theatre directing and then I uh, felt a real urge by the end of it to escape the hierarchies of theatre. And when I came to the UK to London, I did a degree in, and a master's in performance making, which was kind of performance arty. And I think over the last 10, 12 years, it's been a slow removal from classic theatre spaces into gallery spaces and performance art. So I actually rather know I did not go to an art school, I went to a drama school. And how soon did you become an activist or were you always quite active politically? I don't know how to answer that question. I, I've been going to protests for as long as I could escape my parents' attention, I think, because unfortunately, this was the time that I grew up in uh, and the country and the politics of it. So I think a lot of my 
I don't know, childhood, early years were spent in not really political activism, but definitely political action. I think when I came to the UK, and again, I came, I, I just want to be clear, I came on a student visa. That's like a very privileged route to follow. But I think when I came to the UK, immediately I became politically speaking a migrant and immediately the hostile environment, which was not called the hostile environment at the time, but definitely existed in terms of wanting um, wanting to not to make the UK less friendly and open to people who were not from the UK is immediately being a factor in my life. I think I, I struggle with this use of the word activism because I, I, I'm never sure. I always feel like, oh, there's more stuff I could be doing and should be doing. But I think I can't vote. I have very little political speech options available to me as a migrant. I also don't particularly feel comfortable and I haven't for a really long time like going to protests and demonstrations in the UK because of the British legislation that has only gone worse over the last year. There could be serious repercussions for me in terms of my visa status if I so much as talk to a police officer at a protest. So I think I have felt my uh, right to free speech and right to protest curtailed by my migrant existence in the country and limited to a certain degree. And so I think uh, I have over the years tried to find a way that felt as safe as possible in terms of my ability to continue living here, but that still exists within that realm of my fighting for migrant rights and migrant activism. And I think that's something that I share with quite a lot of people I've known over the years who felt that the, their political speech or their activism has had to morph away from how they used to practice it in different spaces because of what they stand to lose, right? And I think anyone who doesn't have citizenship, and you know, in the UK with the new immigration law, even people who do have citizenship is, is in that position. I remember once an American artist uh, who's also done a lot of activist work saying, you know, like one of the reasons I moved to the UK was the NHS. And while before I became a citizen, I dare not be anywhere within the site because he had medical issues within within sight of police uh, for fear that I would have to go back to a land of no NHS. So I think... For a lot of migrants in the UK, and it'd be interesting to hear how it differs in Ireland, but for a lot of migrants in the UK, there's this real balance between what I can do and how I can do it. And I think, and I'll finish um, this rambling thought now, I think that's why I started doing a lot of art projects that in my head blur this line between art and activism, because somehow you gain legitimacy and you feel safer, not legitimacy for yourself, but suddenly it starts being read as art practice if you're doing it within a gallery space. And I, I felt like... It was much safer for a real long time um, and continues to be to a certain extent to practice migrant activism within cultural institutions than it is uh, out and about very, very frequently. Kashin, I'd love to hear your thoughts. So my thoughts on that, well, um, personally, the work that I have been doing since 2007, which is Asylum Archive, and it's a, a visual representation or documentation of the direct provision in Ireland, um, has been anonymous uh, for a very long time. And I didn't reveal my identity, particularly in the time when I was stateless for almost 10 years. And literally, when I uh, was very fortunate to become an Irish citizen, and I think the citizen is kind of really important in, in this discourse. I decided to kind of um, personalize the work that I've been doing, and it was really much easier in terms of communication with an art world, if you like, or academic world, to have a name. Uh, but uh, again, we are reaching that point uh, at, the, uh, at the moment that I am trying to depersonalize it now for uh, the various reasons. So, but in terms of, uh, I have been very much vocal. Um, in particularly in terms of how Ireland does treat people who come to their shores to seek international protection, in terms of in the injustices, in terms of human rights abuses, in, in terms of um, a continuous incarceration. And at times when um, I have been, I haven't been penalized, um, and I am feeling that I will may 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 not be penalized if you like uh, now when I have a status. If you know what I mean, because there is a huge difference. But uh, absolutely, there is a thing that uh, people who are still incarcerated, they speak, uh, some of them do speak, but uh, in general, people are afraid to speak. People are afraid to uh, attend protests, as um, in this case, uh, really, uh, what the state does is uh, creating this system 
where a system of deportability, I think that's the main fear of people in the system to speak out because uh, they're afraid uh, of deportations or um, uh, perhaps transfers to a different center, which has a huge repercussions on their children, for example, going to local schools where they're volunteering or even having a job. So there is that uh, notion, but I think... Yeah, I think it's it's really individual. Um, If if, if that's going to respond, Boyana, to what you were saying earlier? Yeah, I I guess it does. Can I ask you a very specific question? How does it... I I first encountered your work in IMA. So that's quite some time ago. But I remember it was just a tourist walking around IMA. And then first I was attracted to the photo. And at the time I was... um, I was finding myself in a situation where my work, which was about the migrant uh, experience, or very specifically, I think, Eastern European experience in England, was programmed a lot for a variety of structurally problematic reasons alongside art that was a bad refugee experience and almost never by people with experiences of the asylum system. And so I was completely, I remember just immediately recognizing uh, the image and then just spending a lot of time thinking about the absence. I know this is the basis of your work, but thinking about the absence of people in these photos and how how much was said in that absence about the asylum uh, seeking process, about direct provision specifically, but also I think generally more internationally about the asylum seeking process. But I'm just wondering how that change was for you as both a person who went through that process and went through the experiences of asylum seeking and direct provision, uh, but also as an artist to go from feeling unable to share your name publicly uh, as a person that is to a person who is now, from what I can see, and please correct me if I'm wrong, artistically, institutionally, extremely like established with international context in Ireland. And I just wonder, that must have been such a huge and possibly not the easiest of shifts, I presume. No, absolutely. Are you referring to the, the exhibition, Ima, the, the narrow gate here and now? Uh, the, have you seen the last year? Is, am I correct? So there was the last year, but I actually... I th- I'm, I'm all, I mean, I remember because, you know, we're um, from, I'm going to say from the same country, maybe. <laughs> I, I, I remember, you know, I saw the name, recognizing the name, actually some years ago. I'm going to say, is it possible six, seven years ago that I saw something? Because I remember ages ago being, seeing your name somewhere and seeing the images. <laughs> um, so I don't, I don't know those timelines shift. But yes, I saw the most recent one. There has been some kind of progress, really, uh, particularly that time, seven, seven, eight years ago, but it wasn't Ima. So in, indeed, uh, just can I just reflect on this for a second? It took me literally 10 years, right, from the moment when I was in the system, okay, to uh, be um, accepted, to uh, show the work within the White Cube context. Okay, it was a really, really slow, slow process, Boyana. And I actually embedded the journey into academia, started a PhD only for the reason to be able to show my work at the conferences through PowerPoint presentations. And that's how the work existed. So Ima, literally, I still think came a bit as a miracle. And, and then uh, it kind of shifted loads of things, right, as you were kind of saying that. So uh, it's really important. And I think that's what really uh, was fascinating about uh, Ima was the communication with the curator, Sean Kisson, was a really pleasant, wonderful experience. And I I haven't uh, been uh, ever thinking that the work is going to look really that well and good in terms of visual representation in one room. Mm -hmm. And I think this is not the only avenue for the work to be displayed, but it's one off. And I was really, really pleased about that. But I think that kind of multimodality of the work, where the work can exist in in various different discourses, is is extremely important. For for me, yeah, it's really a struggle still, you know, but um, yeah, I mean, keep keep the struggle going. I think that's the notion of it. Can I ask, Justin, can I ask you a question? It's similarly to Vocation. I'm wondering, uh, I know that you went through the asylum process in the UK but I also know that however you think about your art I know that you were funded by Arts Council Northern Ireland and that's kind of in Northern Ireland it's the institution for art and I'm wondering do you think about art that you make as work do you think about it as something else and how do you see this relationship between the work that you're doing for migrant and refugee rights and the art practice does that make sense as a question Yes, it does. First of all, the art for me and the way I'm doing it now is like more than therapy. 
is I'm using it as a therapy for all those in Omanda because going through the process till now is difficult for me to sleep early. I can't sleep early. I sleep very like early in the morning, like two, three o'clock. I force myself to sleep at three. So using the art for me is a therapy. Then my activism side started when I was in uni back home, you know, university student union. Then when I came here and I look at the country and there was a big understanding around asylum seeking process, why people come here, why they don't stay in the country, all these type of things. So I, as a uh, chair of NICRAS, you know, we wanted to let people know there are people here who are, who are seeking asylum, you know, protection, because there were a lot of people didn't know even in Northern Ireland, someone can come here and seek refuge. So going through this process, and I understood some people were very compassionate and understood the plight. Some people were very against. So my activism, I decided strategically to target policymakers, to engage with politicians, because that's where the big, for me, the problem lied at the time, because some of them, you know, if you live in Northern Ireland, you understand the political aspect of the, the game here. But for me, it was very important to get politi- politicians understand why people come here, the reason why people come to seek protection here, and it's going to help us to because they are the lawmakers. For example, here, before asylum seekers were not allowed to uh, learn English was not free. You have to pay to learn English. How can you, an asylum seeker receiving at the time 35 pounds, maybe said 37, 50 something now? How can someone receiving this money every week can pay for his own course? So to get this type of policy change in application, you have to target politicians. So this is how we, you know, made reference, explain things to get free English classes for asylum seekers and so on, even access to gym, you know, paying the same amount, like one pound at a time, like people on benefits, so many things. So for me, at the at the present moment, I use it as a therapy. I will do my art, you know, when I go and come is a way of building, you know, getting strength. Maybe tomorrow it will be an, a night form of pro uh, activism. If I'm able to translate this activism into my heart, you know, it will be good because I, to be honest, like I said, I never learned art at school. I learned it on, on the go from my friend and myself. So it's not difficult for me to say let me find a film you know and then start to develop a body of art i think this is for people like you who study and you have some knowledge but for me now i just and recently i started doing some landscape and, and abstract art so i usually focus on uh, in portraiture you know i have uh, mostly family members as well friends so maybe in the future if i have an idea or I think of something as a former activist and i can translate into a body of art to say this shows this 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 but at the moment is not the way i proceed so, Justin, you were a recipient of an Arts Council grant not so long ago, and in the article interview with you, it talked about how transformative that support was. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Yes, there was this minority form for residency from the Arts Council, and I saw it, and a friend of mine told me, the person who was telling me didn't even know I do art. We were talking about BME issues, black and ethnic minority issues. And she mentioned the funding. So we were talking about the funding. I said, okay. So I went to look at the application and I went to the, they had a, a session on Zoom. But when I looked into the application, there was a criteria where you need, you had to have a practice for you to get this funding. So because I went to the Zoom information section, when I asked the question, you know, someone like myself, me, I do not have a practice, but I have a lot of body of art. By that time, I had about 20 portrait, uh, portrait around in my room. So, and I explained to them that there's a lot of people in my, the side of the world I am in the refugees who do art, but they're not engaging with the art community here. So how can they have a practice? How can they establish a practice if they're not known? And I'm very, um, I was pleasantly surprised by the, you know, the 
Art Council director and the people of the Art Council were very pleased to say, just say, you know what, I think you're making a good point. We're going to look at it. So don't, you know, don't please submit your application and we'll and explain this the way you explain it. So this is how I was able to pass this barrier of, you know, having a practice before you have the grant. So it was very helpful because like I explained in the beginning, I started doing using graphite and watercolor. These are the thing I could afford at the time. So by having this 5,000 pounds and I, I did the budget what I wanted to buy, you know, buy acrylic because I wanted to start with acrylic. And then you know, I was not confident with uh, oil. Then it was I was able to buy a lot of canvases, buy a lot of acrylic paint. And this is when then I started using proper acrylic paint to put on paper. And for me, it was big because I was able to, you know, to make the body of work bigger. So then today, maybe this week, I, I use watercolor. Next week, I do acrylic. And then I'll start, I start doing some uh, abstract as well and landscaping. So by, because I have a lot of canvases, I have a lot of material to play around. So it was very detrimental on, you know, how my art develops. So now I have my own studio at home. I'm trying to find a place where I can put my heart, sit down. So it's very important, at least like Bojan said, said at the beginning, now I, I know I can focus, you know, find a film and start producing some art based on the film I created. You know, it, gave, it really gave me a lot of freedom, a lot of opportunity to experience different medium as well build my confidence. I want to ask a question about how it is in the South. Are there routes for people who are going through the systems to access support or is it utterly different? I'm not really familiar with the Northern Ireland system, but I think it may be very similar, if not the same. I would like to outline something different here, and I'll come back to your question, Catherine. I think it's, and this doesn't have to really imply only for people who are seeking protection or refuge who are coming from outside of Ireland, in Ireland to seek refuge. I think, personally, I had this kind of immense desire to do the work and in the time when I was still in the process for the 10 years, I did the majority of the work that is still the body of asylum market without any funding. And I think it's really important to outline that the work can be done without the funding. I think it's really important to outline that artists shouldn't be waiting for funding to conduct their work. Mm-hmm. I think funding really came, uh, the first funding came uh, from CREATE, uh, which is an agency for the collaborative arts in Ireland. When I was uh, given uh, 10,000 euros as an award that I applied for, it was an artist and activism. And at the time, and I was kind of remember looking at that. So what will I do now? The work is almost completed. It was a couple of years ago. So what will I do with all that money? I'm not really used to have money from the work I've been doing. And then I decided to create a book really or to publish the book Asylum Market and that's how it came about. There has been significant progress in the last couple of years within Arts Council and Create and Fire Station Studios in terms of devising a particular support system and the grants for people who are, let's say, indirect provision, for people who are migrants, for people who are travelers. So I think that's that's really, really kind of slowly unfolding and happening, yet it's really, really far, uh, far, far from what it should be in the first place. But I think Arts Council, with the new director, it's making a huge progress. And, and I think me being around, it's always good and the comrades as well, just to say like, Hold on a second. That's you know, you, you may need to have people from who are may, may not be white or you know who are still in the asylum process and etc. So I think it's on the rise as well as having kind of studio residences as well available for people who are still in the asylum process. So I think it's yeah better than it was. Can I add something to that? Yeah, I'm just thinking about the ways that uh, different funding infrastructures support um, people with experience of migration, and I. 
I don't know who I am to say this. I think my opinion in this case is irrelevant, but I think we should strive for conditions of funding whenever possible, because I think I lived in England for about 10 years before I moved to Northern Ireland, where there's much more money than in Northern Ireland for art funding and art subsidy. And what happens is people with experiences of migration of all kinds, including seeking protection, get excluded structurally from funding systems because they don't know how we don't know how to navigate a system because we were not born into that system. We frequently didn't go to schools that teach us how to navigate that system. And what happens is that usually white British middle-class people then get to make art about what it's like to be a migrant or a refugee, etc. And that creates this really problematic circle of detrimental representation at the very least. And I think I, I work as part of Migrants in Culture. We work at the intersection of arts and culture and migrant justice movements and local governors in the cultural sector in the UK, which is devolved. We try to organize conditions of, of safety for everyone from migrant background for cultural sector where uh, migrant communities can thrive instead of being being kind of marginalized and excluded. And what we have found over and over again is an institutional awareness of needs of anyone with experiences of migrancy and an awareness of how the systems that these institutions see as supportive are actually being exclusive of migrants or anyone with a migration background. And so I think I don't know that it's the job of migrant artists or people, definitely not artists with experiences of going through for the asylum system to, you know, figure out the systems that are needed. Uh, but I think in the UK, definitely, I have found a need to speak up about how existing cultural infrastructure is just another layer of the hostile environment for everyone with a migrant background. My work has been in some pretty large institutions and pretty big institutions, and it all sounds great. The bigger the institutions, the more hostile the HR department, who will bang on my doors until I send them what they think is appropriate documentation as my right to work in the UK. But of course, they are not specialists in a myriad kind of different work permits that exist. And so they are very likely to not understand that what I have allows me to work and to practice and different visas have different limitations in terms of whether you're allowed to do freelance work, how many hours a week outside of different things that you're doing. So um, whether you can be employed or self-employed and so on and so forth. So I think there is also the who gets to make the art and then there are the structures around it that maybe sometimes facilitate the further exclusion of, of people who may or may not be present in galleries and theaters and venues and so on. And I think the thing that exists in Northern Ireland that Justin was talking about, which is relatively new, I think it's now in its second year, as a specific strand of funding for a migrant and artists of color is definitely something that, you know, I, I could also speak about how there are problems with how they talk about it and what they do. But at the same time, it's not something that exists in England, where you will be told that migrancy is not a protected category, and therefore it doesn't count towards any kind of quote unquote diversity funding, and where there is no sense of feeling about how arts funding structures, uh, as I said, a further layer of marginalization for people from um, lived experiences of migrancy. Yeah, 100% uh, I would agree. And I think this is really important to have people who are experiencing or have experienced the system of incarceration, whether it's in Ireland or it's in Northern Ireland or it's anywhere in Europe, in terms of uh, speaking through art, if uh, possible, uh, about that experience, as I believe strongly that, that representation of the refugee-ness by people who have not experienced it and people who have did the work on refugees has been really detrimental, in my view, in, in visual arts, uh, in the representation of that notion in, let's say, in, in the White Cube galleries, in the um, in, in the different biennales, etc. And I'm often thinking about the work of, in Irish context, the work of Richard Moss, uh, Mark Quinn, etc., who have really been um, kind of not aware of particularly ethics, and I think this is really crucially important, of the representation in that sense. So, uh, the more we have the voices from people uh, who have uh, embedded that uh, system. Um, and uh, I think that's uh, really, really crucial and to challenge that kind of establishment that does not serve what I strongly believe is the is the reality of people who are living in the system. Yeah, uh, I'd like to add something as well regarding what Vukasin uh, said and Vogana uh, said as well. You know, when, especially Vukasin, when you're into this asylum process, your whole thought 
is on how the determination of your application, your asylum application, everything has become secondary. So sometimes it's very difficult for artists or any other professional when they're going through this process to be able to express themselves as an artist or as a teacher or whatever they have, because your main concern is the determination of your asylum application. And sometimes after this coming out, so the asylum process may be four years, two years, 12 years, 13 years, there's something vanish. You know, you lose some of this artistic value or what you were doing before. So that's why if the arts, like Bojana said, those funding or those extra help for BME, especially those, uh, you know, in the refugee or uh, asylum process help, because at least it, it bring you back this law for your heart. It bring you back the opportunity to focus because after spending like, a couple of years in this process, but in my case, you know, I've been doing it in my room. I come and I do. And then when I got this funding, I said, wow, this now I can do big body of art. I can earn what I, I used to do. Then I stopped straight away using graphite. I started using acrylic. But if I didn't get this funding, I was going to be in the same place, you know. And that's why sometimes making access to those funding is very important for those who came to the asylum post or BME or people or migrant, it gave them the opportunity to, to expand because if you move here and, and as a new migrant, you know, you have so many things to try to find out. You don't have time to focus on art sometimes unless you get it and, and then some help somewhere to help someone somewhere to help you. That's what I wanted to add to this. I really think of all this art infrastructure as part of the structure of citizenship. And I think this idea that Justin was talking about of losing something of yourself and your passion or your ability to do your work as you go through various processes of asylum or migrancy and so on. You know, I really think it's part of the practice of citizenship to be able to partake in artistic infrastructure, such as the infrastructure funding, for example. And I don't just mean citizenship in the sense of I have a passport. I just mean citizenship as in active participation in, in a society of a country we live in. And so I think it's also up to places like Arts Council of Northern Ireland or Ireland or other countries, places like galleries, like museums, like theatres and so on, to actually actively think about how they are not facilitating the practice of citizenship for different people who might be migrants, who may have gone through the asylum process, who may have different uh, ways of being excluded outside of this from cultural infrastructure. And part of the extreme problem that we have in the UK, at least, and again, always curious to he hear what it's like in Ireland because so close yet so far away uh, from where I am at the moment. But part of the problem that we have is the people, for the most part, people who are leading those institutions are so far removed from those experiences of marginalization that it is not within their realm of thinking that they need to facilitate the practice of citizenship for some people. And at the same time, in different, again, in the UK, it's devolved. So in different countries that make up the UK, there are different pressures from arts councils that don't come from devolved or Westminster government about how to distribute funding and 12 years of Tory government. And in Northern Ireland, a complete absence of continuous government has not helped. They have created pressures where, you know, in England, you just have to count people. You just like manically need to count how many people come to each exhibition. And then you have to prove that those people fit certain categories. And we count diversity in England. They count diversity for the most part. So if you can prove there were 53 uh, women and that's more than men, then, then you've ticked out the diversity box and we can move on to the next one. And if you don't have a box for your experience, then institutions will not think about you. So I just want to return back and actually want to ask you, Catherine... <laughs> As a person in charge of an art institution, I want to ask you how you think of this intersection between migrancy and the space that you curate and think about, because I have to say uh, that my experience of meeting you, knowing you and working with the CCA has really stood out in that sense that I didn't have to figure out how my story works for you as a curator so that you would find it within your realm, which is often what I think as a migrant artist you have to do, you have to figure out how to translate what you want to talk about to people who co are completely removed from this experience so that they would grant you an opportunity to practice this kind of citizenship. But I think would you have really had the experience of you coming to me after I spoke for five minutes or 10 minutes, 20 minutes and saying, I would like to do something about this, which thank you, amazing. But I'm just wondering how you as a person who curates a gallery thinks about this relationship. Like, what do you think is the gallery's role in terms of 
enabling different levels of citizenship, including for migrants? Sure. So I think my approach to programming partly is informed by when I was growing up, for example, women weren't directors, women weren't getting solo shows. There was a massive, just on a very simple level of gender, women weren't as visible as men. So uh, from very young, I always wanted to be be the change you want to see. And so the second I got a chance to start programming spaces, I was just like, right, I want gender parity as well as gender non-conforming artists and who else hasn't been visible and trying to be very mindful about who isn't usually visible. And with that, I'm very keen that CCA is a platform for different voices. We're also very artist-centered. So I try my best to see who's making work, what makes for an interesting program, what resonates with our space, what resonates with our audiences who are much more diverse than I think uh, certainly the... (laughs) the English media paint Northern Irish populations to be because it's never been just themons and themons. That's just not representative historically. It's not representative now. So what we have in an art space is that opportunity to share different perspectives and to give that platform to your voice in hopefully a visually stunning, gripping way, which perhaps is a very simplistic answer, but it's, I think my role is having the imagination to meet artists, see how they work, know our space, know our context and see what could happen and to be able to create something that hopefully it can be, uh, I want to say the word nutritious, but that's that's a terrible word to use, but... At least uh, that's my very simplistic approach. But thank you very much for the compliments. That's very, very lovely to hear. (laughs) But I've really enjoyed learning about your practice. And it's been really great to see how it's been able to mean a lot to the people who come into our gallery as well. Can you tell us a bit about what it's like in Ireland in terms of um, you've you've mentioned a couple of artists who are detrimental to uh, inclusion and um, representation of um, asylum experiences. Are there any good practices like what works in Ireland for you as an artist? What is it that works? Who are the people doing the interesting, good, inclusive work? What should we try and uh, figure out as a practice that, that can we can steal from the South and bring to the North maybe? No, absolutely. And I didn't really get to kind of uh, maybe trans unpack that kind of detrimental and I really kind of attitude and I really think this is coming from the position of not knowing and a position of the power and I mean the power is the white power right or even the white supremacy and this is really coming from the the notion that the white privileged middle class men okay uh, widely established like uh, Richard Moss did represent Ireland the Venice Biennale we know the importance of Mark Twain you know from the Saatchi etc and I can give you uh, or Simon Buhel who did um, uh, show the, the boat uh, that uh, you know Lampedusa boat to the Venice Biennale and, and these kind of problematics are still present so we are actually having this that our students undergraduate and, or you know or even masters have in their curriculum uh, learning about those um, not only unethical practices which I mean this kind of hurts me the most as I hate uh, people who are, let's say, in the asylum process or who have been in the asylum process being represented in that derogatory way. It's only that we have a graduates who are actually, you know, following the paths of those kind of uh, well-known artists. And I think this is a huge problem here. So I would have, um, and uh, I mean, to be perfectly honest, I don't know of any good practices in terms of the work that shows representation or, or the work on refugees or direct provision or etc. I think the main issue that we have here in the visual arts discourse is that we are looking uh, all the time for a face to be able to humanize. Do we really need a face to be able to humanize? Do we really need the bodies? Do we really need to see the dead body of Alan Kurdi washed to the Turkish shore to humanize? And, and then how many Alan Kurdis have drowned since that boy called Alan Kurdi? And then how, how do we negotiate that? So I think that voyeurism is extremely, extremely problematic. And I did suffer for those 10 years that I've mentioned because uh, people who run the galleries have asked me in the South, have asked me, 
but uh, where are the bodies here? We would like to see the bodies. And I did say, but there are no bodies and you will not see the bodies. And I think it's getting really to that moment that I kind of will use perhaps something that, that I can within, within that kind of context of working with people in the process to literally bring that. And I think it's really important to give space and time uh, for people who are in the system to practice art if they wish mm -hmm. and to learn. Mm -hmm. I think Justin gives a perfect example, you know, um, and there are so many people like that. And I think that to even question what is art and what is not art is deeply problematic. So I'm just, you know, I was really this morning looking at your work, Justin, uh, that I could find on Google. And I was like, wow, this is just great. And looking at your background, I think this is just phenomenal, you know. So um, I think giving a, a platform uh, to people uh, to express themselves is, uh, is crucially important. And yes, uh, um, uh, making aware arts council or arts councils uh, through activism about their privileges and about them not doing their work properly is also important. It's up to us as well to do that. I think uh, uh, Vukashin used this word, humanizing, you need to have the body so that you're humanizing it. And I just wanted to second that. that there's this, always this question, but who for? You know, who am I doing this humanizing for? And it's, as Vukashin said, this imagined audience that is representative of white privilege. Um, I think in the context of Ireland, I think it especially baffles me, this relationship when it happens in Ireland, I mean, the island of Ireland, giving the still ongoing experience and fact of colonization, you know? And so I think, that there is something fascinating and fascinatingly troubling that is that has happened there when you can have this in the Irish context as well, that we need to humanize through only engaging in traumatic representation of uh, migrant and refugee experiences. And we have to do that because we're imagining those audiences who are coming to see that to not have shared that experience. I think that's the other part of, of equation that's happening there, that you're imagining that people who are coming to see that as a curator, you're imagining your audiences as not having that experience, at which point I question why, as a curator, a director, or gallery, you're not imagining people from migrant backgrounds as your audiences, and what, why the hell not, and how do you change that? Because God knows there's plenty of us who could be coming to see, and I know that plenty of us feel excluded as audiences and not just in art, as artists. And I think there's this other point of art education that you mentioned, Vukashin, of, of, of what are the students being taught in institutions and who are they looking at and how this circle of negative representation repeats itself. I think this also obviously has to do with who's teaching and, and how do we de-everything the curriculum, like the, the, decolonize, decentralize from uh, white Western experiences and art practices and so on and so forth. But I think... It also has to do, as a person who has done some teaching, I think it also has to do with how art and drama schools imagine what is teachable, you know? And I think it, it falls into this highly institutional and mainstream, let's look at what's at the Venice Biennale only category, or frequently it's like, let's look at applied context. But we, we separate applied art or uh, art therapy, we separate it in this corner where real art practice, quote unquote, is not, you know? And so I think there is also work that is being done in art schools to perpetuate this next negative representation and I think exclusion um, of migrants as well as well from art practice. I think it's worth to note that the two most prominent responses to the work that we've had by Boyana in our current exhibition is uh, the people who see themselves in it, people who are migrants, that they had never seen themselves represented in a gallery before. And they were really moved by it and felt so strongly that it was such a special feeling. And that was really awesome. And the other response has been from so many people who haven't had a migrant experience where they had no clue that this was the day day-to-day -day experience that migrants were facing and it's been a huge catalyst for conversation and realization like a lot of people just going oh <laughs> as the pennies dropping as to how the infrastructure of something as simple as the buses is impacting negatively on the migrants that are in this region and I just felt that that's something worth noting. Justin, I wanted to ask, when you've been talking to the politicians in your role as chair or um, the various hats that you have had, what has the response been? Are you pushing it an open door? Uh, have the politician and policymakers been positively responsive or, and has it changed over time? Uh, yes, it's, it's a very good question because from the beginning, you know, the first thing you receive as an answer is like, oh, we have people here struggling 
you know, we have people live in poverty, we have people, it's difficult. So you always get this question first. So was a case of acknowledging the sufferings of local people, people living here first, and then said, but these people came here in a very different circumstances and the struggle is very difficult and there's an ongoing struggle. And also people suffer here, there's some mechanism, there's some support around them to help them come out from you know, poverty. But the refugee or asylum seekers are maintaining to poverty, to destitution by the asylum immigration process itself but not allowing them to work, but giving them a very, like, at the time it was 35 pounds, but I believe it's 37 pounds something now, or 40 pounds, I don't know. Even children receiving five pounds a day is not good. It's not humanly possible for, for people to live in this condition without getting help from somewhere, from church or local community support. So it, it was not easy, but, you know, in always. You know, when I approach politicians, I approach those who I think are more human than politicians. Understand? I don't know if I can explain myself well, but I try to look into the politicians, those who have the human side of the person. They're not, they don't have politics as a career. They just human try to make a difference. These are the people I target first, I make connection with because I know they will go beyond the politics and look into the human aspect and be able to try to change, help them to change, you know, make policy, change things. These are this this way my approach. When I see politicians, I talk to them, I will be able to know if he's more human-led or he's a very politician, politician. So then I can make my move and try to let them know, give them facts. Because when you talk to politicians, they want evidence. So I'll give them facts, you know, and I have one of them particular, I'm not going to name here, but he was, he really, he was so human. He wanted to see the living condition of asylum seeker himself, so we went to, I spoke to two friends who were happy to let him come into the house. So he came in and he experienced, he saw the dump, he saw the crowdness, he saw everything from the room. He started tweeting, post, post. He asked if he could post photos. And then when he went out, he became a champion for the book. These are my technique I use at the time when I was, you know, refugee, you know, leading the refugee asylum seeker. But I wanted to touch to the commission first because my time is coming up, so if possible. So as a commissioner now, it's just uh, moving from advocating for a group of people living in Northern Ireland, as a refugee asylum seeker, to advocate for everyone in Northern Ireland, which is very interesting as well because you, as a commissioner, you advocate, you monitor, you report, you advise government, you monitor uh, human rights instruments, see how the country here or local government apply the human rights instrument when making laws or passing laws and advise uh, those, the government department on how different law could impact human rights. So I think for me now it's a bigger challenge because I now I'm representing all everyone living in Northern Ireland. So how we can I can make an impact changing life of let's say you know when it comes to abortion or gay right or LGBT right or migrant right or employment, all this type of thing, even policing, how to improve this thing, what will be my contribution? That's what I will be doing. And I'm looking forward to it and it's very broad now. So, yeah, we'll see how it goes. Not a question, more of an observation. I'm just thinking about how amazing it is to have you working for people of Northern Ireland because it really reframes this idea of what Northern Ireland is. And again, you see that very rarely. <laughs> you see that very rarely. And I'm, yeah, it's not a question. I'm, I'm just thinking about how I, yeah, it's not a question. I'm, I'm just thinking about how I personally, as like, you know, a white immigrant who again came here on a student visa, like I so feel unrepresented in the Northern Irish system and in the English system as well, but in the Northern Irish system. So to actually see spaces opening up from people who are 
who arrived here and were not born here and are not part of the like how uh, how Northern Ireland is imagined incorrectly <laughs> really as this kind of British Irish space. I think I just want to say that I think I'm very excited for that. Thank you very much. I think it's a big challenge. Like you said, that's what motivated me even when I was working with uh, refugee and asylum seekers. When you, you are put into this position, you become like the face. So you need to make sure you do your utmost best because if you fail somewhere, then it will give excuse for those who don't want migrant or BME to occupy high level positions. So it's extremely difficult at the time, but you know, it's challenging, but we ought to challenge. You know, I always say, if you want you leave your country to come in another country, you are already a role model. You are, you, you are the one who will make changes. Nobody can make change for you if you took the step to come here. Because sometimes where we live as a migrant, people cannot imagine what we went through, what we mean every day. You know, they take us for granted, but they don't understand like there's a a challenge every day, every minute we live, try to balance everything with the new life we live. So, well, I hope to be a, a good commissioner, then it will open more doors and give confidence for local people or all institutions and all appointments to appoint BME people, migrants who have the capacities, who have the knowledge, because this is a difficulty we face. We have people among us who are very talented, we are very bright or very bad. Because they try so hard and it's not opening, they just stop forcing, they just do what they're doing every day to just get a living. Then they're tired of trying to push the boundaries high. They will stop. So I think if I'm able to achieve this in three years, if I'm able to have good feedback and represent everyone, including local and migrant, I think I will be proud of this journey. I think that's a rather wonderful note to finish on. (laughs) Thank you so, so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you, Justin. Okay, bye-bye. Speak to you later. See you later. Bye-bye. I'm thinking about the strategies for resistance and how to mobilise. You know, I think that's kind kind of really important. What I mean, you? what are you thinking about strategies of resistance and ways to mobilize? Yeah, just really whether it's a kind of visual arts discourse or you know whether it's a positionality and precariousness of people who are really living in the system still. Because I think in, in my work, I think it's a very blurred line whether you know this is art or whether I'm trying to, in my best of capacity, trying to make a system that is more transparent for people who are coming to Ireland to seek protection and how do we move on from there I mean I think I have a a different like my struggle is opposite because I I often think like I don't know if I can even dare call this in any way activist you know because for me I'm always concerned that I'm going into some space where is it my space can I be here (laughs) Um, but I think I I think that there's also, you know, one of my reactions to what you're saying is artists or activists who are working in between these fields, we don't have to be perfect super people who who do everything, you know, I think for me, there's also a moment in which it's okay to say, well, this is now my art practice, but my art practice exists between art spaces and uh, migrant spaces or refugee spaces. You know, I wonder if as a migrant artist, there's also this pressure to do more than that there's this idea of art practice will achieve all these things. And maybe that's an excuse. I don't know. No, if, if I got this right, I think there is an, a kind of antagonisms there, you know, and I've seen this lot with my colleagues who are in academia and, and they're kind of right and their position to uh, even be involved, whether, let's say, solidarity groups or uh, who do you speak for, I think that's really important. But I think the, the notion of the allies in the struggle is extremely important. I think that this comes with the nuances. And I think, and, uh, again, the position of privilege, and when I say the position of privilege, I mean me being white, you know, even in the asylum process, was significantly different to experience of my comrades who were not white. So, and then I think it's also, I get caught by that because people say okay well you know he has experienced uh, direct provision so therefore he is speaking from that position but I don't think that uh, for example the work I do is any more 
superior or more relevant than the work that any other people can do right really when it comes to art I think for me it's like really ethics and I think it really really comes to ethics and particularly working with marginalized groups uh, is a durational arts practice and it's really saddened to see this kind of um, even arts council advertising you know for like six months or even one year and then you come you have artists who are literally parachuting into communities right and extracting the nectar you know and they have to provide a report within one year so they're under pressure and everything goes wrong you know i am people can't see us i'm nodding so furiously Yes, I think a lot of my practice is participatory in many ways, but I've also been on the receiving end of those kind of invitations. And the number of times I've said, but who's being paid? So for, for me, that's one, the first question, like you're going in, you're, as you said, so eloquently extracting the nectar. Um, with migrancy, there's always this, this phrase, which I swear to God, I have an allergic reaction to, of, we want to foreground migrant stories. And it's always like you're just extracting the narrative of people's lives for your own social and economic capital and cultural capital. And I think there's always this question of, are you co-creating with people? In which case, are those people also artists? In which case, how are you paying them for their time? Or are you presuming that there are people in this world for whom participation in your art practice is all the award that they need? And as you say, these are always people who are in some ways experiencing marginalization. And so for them, the time giving is more costly usually than even for the artist. I think there's also this in, in I would say, Western Europe, there's this very detrimental idea of artists as the ultimate precariat of late capitalism, which is completely, I could argue against that for hours just because artists whatever their background live in extreme precarity and financial instability it allows them to forego exactly these ethics that uh, vocation is talking about because we are the most endangered and therefore we could not possibly endanger anyone and it facilitates these horrible unethical amoral institutionalized structures of participation that get passed on as inclusion you know i think that's the other problem that we if i go and extract someone's stories of their marginalization, it is presented as exclusion. And those people who, whose stories have been extracted have not been included in the economic setup. They have not been included in the representational setup. They're just there as the object. They're the equivalent of the apple that someone paints, you know, for, for all these artists institutions. And um, the problem is for institutions, this costs a lot. You want to do ethical participatory projects. They're the most expensive in, for them. Frequently, I think art institutions see community and participatory projects as cheap and easy and so rewarding to do. And I think that's a giant problem that people are like, but, but that costs so much. I can't possibly pay all these people to, to extract their stories and so on. And I think that in the artistic community, there's this idea of what I need to have autonomy over my artistic process that doesn't recognize that in participatory projects, it's not your artistic process. It's the process of everyone who's involved in it. Those are some of the thoughts I have on ethics of participation that include migrants, but not migrants only. Everyone, I think this is particularly participation was kind of made up for art institutions to persuade themselves that they are doing work with marginalized communities while actually doing, I don't know, some kind of conscious bathing exercise. <laughs> I don't know how else to call it. Like doing art to people rather than with people. I was once in a panel where someone who's a person who's thinking I respect quite a lot said to me, you know, why do we expect everyone to participate in art? We don't expect everyone to go to football matches. And if someone made me go see uh, Manchester United, I'd be very annoyed. And I wanted to scream, well, we don't subsidize Manchester United. Well, I'm sure there is some way in which we do, but we don't have a whole department and a whole institution whose job is to give money to, quote, make great art for everyone, which I was for a really long time Arts Council England's tagline. So I think there's also the responsibility that comes with that kind of, I hate to say this, taxpayers <laughs> commitment. But, you know, I think there's also sometimes we confuse art and culture with completely private entities and businesses that operate outside. Vukashin, do you want to come back on anything that Poyana's just said? No, I agree 100%. I think, yeah, no, that's it. I, I'm just really thinking a lot uh, throughout my time uh, here. And also, I mean, having been hustled a lot of time from the artist 
So what to do the work with uh, people in direct provision in terms of giving them names and contacts and how can they infiltrate within the community and what is the easy way how to do that and I kind of may perhaps want to maybe conclude on and even people some that I have met uh, over the almost 20 years time really mean good but uh, what it comes out is uh, really terrible and I remember this um, artist who actually got uh, significant funding from the Arts Council just before the pandemic he was asking me to give him the, the, the names of the contacts of the people who are living in various direct provision centers and he wanted to interview me and I said so okay okay so what's can you explain your project and he says well this is the work I got the show in one of the galleries in the west of Ireland so I wanted to meet as many people as possible who are in the process and I want to sit with them and I want to talk with them and I'm going to have with me a little small cup and I kind of wanted to collect their tears, right? And that's the true story. And I was shocked in a way. And then that it kind of really ended. Uh, so he really thought that that kind of exhibiting actual tears from the participants in the small cups in the gallery will be a solidarity instead of thinking that that process of re-traumatizing and uh, literally asking people to cry is a um, violation of anyone's right. And, and this, is, this is what we are against if you know what I mean. And this is something that's really, and this is so, uh, it, it, it has so many different layers. So how wrong is that? And how, how low can we go? Like again, it comes to education and this is really, really important. And also um, the people on the Arts Council who are decision makers, I think that it has to be some work done there as well. Thank you for having me and the pleasure. I mean, and we can talk, you know, continuously, but I really enjoyed this conversation. Thanks, Boyan, and thanks. Catherine. Thank you both so much for joining. It's been really fantastic to be able to hear your conversations. Oh, so much more to discuss in the future, I think. So thank you all very much for your time and your insights. Thank you so much for me as well, Wakashi. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you to all of our speakers in today's podcast. Bojana Jankovic, Vukashin Nedeljekovic and Justin Kwame. You can read more about each of the artists by following the links in this episode's description. And you can see documentation about ballads of rhinestones and newcomers at ccadld.org slash exhibitions. And thank you for listening.